Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Eastman Kodak released the Super 8 camera in 1966, and when Ken Quapis's Ken Quapis was uh, 10 years old, his parents thought it would make a great gift for their son. That set him on the road to an award-winning career during which he's directed 11 feature films and helped launch seven television series, including The Larry Sanders Show and The Office. And now he's written a book called, But What I Really Want to Do is Direct, Lessons from a Life Behind the Camera. It's published by St. Martin's Griffin and brings director, writer, producer Ken Quapis to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, oh, it's a fun book to read. You, you say in your book that you wanted to explore things that film schools don't teach you. Well, what are the film schools missing? Well, you know, it's funny because what really prompted me to start writing the book was I've been I've been <clears throat> I've had the pleasure of mentoring a lot of up and coming directors over the past few years and. And you know, directors want to talk about craft, of course, things like you know where to put the camera, how to talk to actors. But more and more, I, I found that the questions that young directors were asking me had to do with things that I never talked about in film school. For instance, how to how to comport yourself as a director, how to oversee a group of people without becoming authoritarian, for instance, or or how to work and in, walk into a room full of executives and and properly, you know, convey your passion for a project. And, and, I, and conversely, how to pick yourself up off the ground after a meeting you know, totally goes south. So these were things that uh, I feel, I mean, there's a, quite a few things that I feel that some schools don't teach you, but those, these were the ones that inspired me to start writing. Looking over some of the things that you've worked on, I'd imagine it's also, how do you deal with incredibly difficult people? Well, I... I don't have a I don't have a one size fits all <laughs> rule about it, but I, I think the part of what I try and remember is that for the most part, very difficult people are going to be difficult, you know, standing in line at Trader Joe's <laughs> as, as mm -hmm. much as they will be on your set. So it's nothing to take personal. And uh, I, I do feel like you know, again, ninety percent of the job is just sort of giving a very difficult person like you know thirty seconds to vent, and it usually tends to. It, Again, I feel like most problems will, will will solve themselves if you just give somebody a little chance to like get whatever's on their chest off their chest. You do name names in the book, but only of people who are no longer alive. Um, <laughs> did, did, didn't you major in speech at Northwestern University? What led you to pursue an MFA at the USC School of, of Cinema and Television? Mm -hmm. Well, at Northwestern, I did study film, and film falls under the umbrella of the School of Speech at Northwestern. At least it did in the late 1970s. I'm not exactly sure how it works now, but I was a, a so-called radio, TV, and film major within the School of Speech. Mm. So I'm, I, I've, I was focused on film as an undergrad and as a grad. Your, your thesis film, For Heaven's Sake, won the Student Academy Award in 1982. And you joined some pretty uh, interesting, notable winners of the award, including Spike Lee, Robert Zemeckis, and, and Carrie Fukunaga. How did winning that award affect you and your career? You know, I, I can't really say it led directly to a job, but it did lead to uh, getting to hire an agent. And, and by the way, in 1982, when I was a grad student at USC, I had no clue what an agent did. 
uh, or uh, what they what their job was. But I I did manage to get one, and and my first agent managed to uh, help me get my first job, which was directing. Uh, and well, not quite an after-school special. This the first job I had was uh, an episode of something called the CBS Afternoon Playhouse, which was CBS's attempt to compete with ABC's very popular after-school special. And those were hour-long films aimed at young people. Often they had, you know, certain sort of. Some of them were cautionary tales, but the ones that I directed at the top of my career were uh, entertaining first and last. And uh, so I guess, yes, I, I would say that winning the Student Academy Award certainly did not hurt. Uh, I'm sure it looked great on your resume as well. What was that film about? And do you think it holds up? Oh, gosh, I don't I don't want to make any great claims <laughs> about whether it holds up. And uh, uh, here's what it you know, what, what it is, is it's an adaptation of a Mozart one act opera. Mm. I had a I had a close friend uh, at USC who was getting his uh, Master of Fine Arts in conducting in the music program, and he needed to uh, do some sort of thesis project, and we decided to pool our efforts. And, so, and, and, and I loved the idea of directing a musical, but I was restricted. I couldn't use any uh, you know, copyrighted music, but my friend Stephen, he said, well, let's look into the operatic literature, which is in the public domain, and he found this... Uh, you know, fairly obscure Mozart one act. The original title is the impresario, or in German, the Schauspiel director, and uh, and we, uh, you know, <laughs> boldly just rewrote the libretto, transposed it to a modern setting, and he conducted and did, was the music director, and I directed the film. Now, you mentioned that your first directorial job was in 1983, working on the CBS Afternoon Playhouse program. A Revenge of the Nerd. And to get that job, you had to interview with Bob Keeshan, uh, better known I, yes, as Ka Captain Kangaroo. I, my first, well, it, and it was quite a quite a eventful interview. I was very nervous about meeting Captain Kangaroo. And uh, in the middle of the interview, the captain, I'll call him the captain, the captain mm -hmm. kind of ran out of questions to ask. I kind of got the feeling in the middle of my job interview that Bob Keeshan had not interviewed many directors. And so he, at one point, just kind of ran out of things to ask. So he, <laughs> he said to me, he goes, Ken, so tell me, how were your grades in school? <laughs> and, and I was, and I froze because I left USC before completing my degree. Moreover, I let several classes go unfinished. And I guess, you know, if, if you looked at my record now, those would technically be Fs because I think they go from incomplete to F at a certain point. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, I, the captain's going to like call USC and get my transcript, and I'm going to lose this job. So I, I, I fibbed. I, I, I lied about my grades. My grades were pretty good, but I sort of fibbed about you know, my academic standing, and uh, I'm happy to say the captain uh, gave me the job. The book is filled with uh, interesting things, including your suggestions about how to handle job interviews. Um, but I want to get to uh, your, some of the early projects you worked on. Most sure. of them were for children, including Sesame Presents Follow That Bird. So um, yeah, Sesame is that a good way to get into the business? And what's it like to direct puppets rather than people? Well, you know, here's the thing is I, 
I didn't. I certainly didn't plan on starting my career directing films for young people, let alone really young people. I mean, Sesame Street is aimed at like two to six year olds. And uh, but I but Warner Brothers in the early 80s decided it was time to make a feature film starring the Sesame Street characters. There had been no film featuring those characters before, and I was enlisted. And the first thing I had to do was fly to New York. I live in Los Angeles. Fly to New York and meet with Jim Henson. And uh, I, one of the first things I said during my job interview with Jim Henson was, uh, I have never directed a puppet. I don't have any idea how to direct a puppet. And I, I, even at the time, I thought, well, this meeting could quickly go off the rails. <laughs> just, I just, right off the bat, just admitting what I don't know. But Jim was very appreciative of me admitting that, and his answer has stuck with me to this day. He goes, well, he goes, just talk to the puppeteers like they're actors. Mm-hmm. And, and he, it was just very simple. And, and we got on instantly, uh, Jim Henson and I, and... Jim only, he was very gracious. I mean, I was, here I was basically just out of film school directing characters, iconic characters that these men, Frank, Oz, Jim Henson, Carol Spinney created. But Jim only had one demand of me. He insisted that on day one of shooting the film, Follow That Bird, that I gather the entire crew and ask everyone to raise their hand in the air for one solid minute. I'm actually raising my hand in the air right now as I'm talking to you. And the reason he asked me to do this is he wanted everyone on the crew to appreciate how difficult it is for a puppeteer to keep their hand, like, hoisted in the air while the crew is doing, like, umpteen lighting and camera adjustments. So day one, I got about 40 or so people in a circle and had everyone hold their hand up per gym. Insistence. <laughs> How does working on projects for children compare to working on content for adults, which is, of course, where you wanted to go and where you wound up going? Well, here's one of the interesting things I learned about, or learned from the Muppets. I should say uh, there were many lessons learned from the Muppets. I learned a lot about character development from the Muppets. And it sounds like I'm making a joke, but Cookie Monster, for instance, wants one thing and one thing only cookies. You know, he doesn't want, I don't know, a cheeseburger. He wants cookies. And so one of the great things about the Muppet characters is they, are, they have such clearly defined drives. And I would say over the years uh, since then, I've directed many flabbily written characters who may have, like, funny things to say, but have no drive, have nothing that, that, that's at stake. And so I think there was a lot, I learned a lot about, literally about character development uh, from the Muppets, the big thing I learned uh, working on that film, and I write about this in the book, when I first started directing Follow That Bird, the, you know, the main character is an eight-foot bird, Carol Spinney's great creation, Big Bird. At, at the beginning of the shoot, I really thought of Big Bird mostly as a kind of an exotic object to be photographed. I mean, a beautiful, odd object. And part of the challenge I felt was, like, how do you frame Big Bird? How do you compose images with an eight-foot character, <laughs> let alone a, you know, a bird. But what happened over the course of the shoot is I started to connect more and more with Big Bird's emotional journey in this story. And by the way, it's a, it's a very powerful journey. It's a story about leaving home to find home. It's really a story about coming to realize that you know, the diversity on Sesame Street 
is much more important and much more valuable than living with your own kind. Needless to say, a message that couldn't be more vital today. And so what happened over the course of shooting the film is that Big Bird became, well, Big Bird started as an object and turned into a subject. I was suddenly connected with Big Bird, again, on a, well, on a human level. And this is something I say in the book. I, I, it's like, ironically, it took an eight-foot bird to teach me that my job as a director was really to become a student of human nature. So I really am grateful to Carol and Big Bird for teaching me that. And it led you to working uh, with Steven Spielberg, directing an installment of his primetime television program, Amazing Story. So that was the beginning of a whole other career. That was, yes. And then, in fact, <clears throat> I mean, Steven Spielberg's show was only on the air for two seasons, but it was really ambitious. And a lot of the episodes had immense production value, like greater than a lot of feature films. The one that he asked me to do, however, was so low-tech. I think in a way, uh, Steven Spielberg, I think, was a little bit, I don't want to say tired of like the high production value episodes, but I think he wanted to maybe circle back to the kind of simpler storytelling that you would find in a show like The Twilight Zone. So the episode he assigned to me, uh, entitled Lane Change, um, has two characters in a car, that's it. That's the whole thing. It's a rainy night and two characters are in a car. Kathy Baker plays a woman who picks up someone who's, you know, whose car has been, uh, who, who needs a lift, Priscilla Pointer, who's about 20 years older, and, and, they, and they converse. And over the course of the 20-minute-plus episode, Kathy realizes that Priscilla is actually her older self. That's the whole thing. So that, that's very classic kind of Twilight Zone stuff. But again, what I loved about it was nothing flashy. And so the challenge was how to, how to kind of create something that was emotionally engrossing with two people stuck in a car for 25 minutes. But it's, uh, most of the things you've directed have been comedies. How, how different is it to direct a drama and comedy? Or is well, it all pretty much the same sort of thing? I feel like, well, there's a couple ways to answer that. One is I feel like, I, for television anyways, I feel like I, I sort of was blessed with the ability to you know, help launch or work on shows that were starting to expand the idea of what a half-hour television show could be tonally. And, and, uh, but I would say my, my general approach is this, is that if I'm given a piece of comedic material, no matter how broad it may seem, my, my first job is to figure out how to ground it in some reality, ground it in emotional reality. And at the same time, if I'm given a piece of dramatic material, whether it's that episode of Steven Spielberg's series, or an episode of ER, or even a film like The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, which has a lot of you know, compelling dramatic content, my, part of my job is to find the humor hiding in the drama. I think there's always humor hiding in the drama somewhere. And uh, you know, it's a good director's job to kind of sniff it out. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Launch on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Ken Quapis, K-W-A-P-I-S. His book, But What I Really Want to Do is Direct Lessons from a Life Behind the Camera. So in 1992, you began directing the first, oh no, well, 1991, let's talk about your co-directing a feature film with your now wife, Narissa Silver. 
with my now wife, a wonderful fiction writer, uh, Marissa Silver. And, and what happened in the late 1980s is Marissa and I, we were dating. We were not married yet. We were dating. We went out to dinner with, a, with an acquaintance who asked how we met. And over dinner, we proceeded to tell these wildly conflicting stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like, the details were all off. And after dinner, um, I just sort of pitched the idea to Marissa. I said, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should create a film just about our two different memories of how we met. And she, like right in the moment, right in the moment, just said, oh, that's great. Let's call it He Said, She Said. Now, I'm going to give her credit for coining that phrase. There have been some different versions, some variations in the past. There was, of course, a Beatles song, She Said, She Said. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Marissa coined this, the phrase that has since become very ubiquitous, and we, uh, we pitched it to Paramount uh, as, a, as a project that we would co-direct. And uh, so it, it's a film that not only tells the story of you know, a relationship from two points of view, but also features two directorial points of view. So you directed the man's part of you in the, the Kevin Bacon part of the film. Your wife directed the woman's part of you in the Elizabeth Perkins part Elizabeth of the Perkins, film. Right. Now, and, would it have been more difficult if you and Marissa hadn't been engaged to be married at the time? Oh, well, uh, that's a great question. I, I can't, I, don't, I couldn't possibly, well, no, but we weren't engaged yet. Ah, well, still, but you, were, you had a relationship and obviously you were bringing some of that perspective. Oh, to your approach to the film. I mean, just to kind of put all my cards on the table, the, 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 the story is about, well, Kevin's character is a bit of a commitment phobe and is not ready mm-hmm. to take that next step in, in, in that relationship with Elizabeth Perkins's character. And all I will say without going into too much detail is that was torn from the pages of real life. I'll leave it at that. Mm. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, a lot of the things you've worked at seem to be uh, drawn from the pages of real life. The next year, 1992, you began directing the first season of The Larry Sanders Show. And most of the people in the business I've spoken to agree that it was the most realistic depiction of a talk show and its inner workings that was ever done. And you did 12 episodes of, of many did, episodes. Yes, I did most of the first season of the show, including the pilot episode, along with four episodes during the second season. I'd love to share one thing with you about that that I didn't write about in the book, and that is when I started as a director in the 1980s, as a professional director, I had, I had a real bias against television directing. And by the way, I wasn't alone. Most of my peers did not think highly of television directing. The general feeling... And um, actors as well. Actors, actors uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they 100%. wanted to be in the films, and, and it, then everything turned around, and people started developing their careers in the, on television and, and going into movies. Oh, no, absolutely. And I had that bias. Even though I'd worked on shows like Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories, I still had a bias against TV directing. And in, in, after Marissa and I put out He Said, She Said, I remember the day that this you know, half-hour comedy script came my way. It was in a manila envelope. And I didn't even want to open the envelope. I thought, oh, here it is, the slippery slope. If I take this job, you know, no one will ever take me seriously as a feature director. But I did open it, and indeed it was the pilot of the Larry Sanders show. And, and I remember reading it, and I just remember being pretty flabbergasted by, first, it, it, as a half-hour television show, it just felt different from anything on television, period. But secondly, 
Well, it felt oh, like a documentary, didn't it? But that was part of the approach. Well, it was. I, I, it wasn't a so much a mockumentary, but what it was that made I th- made it unique was that it was very observational, and that it was not a joke-driven comedy. It was very much about the behavior of these characters, mm-hmm. and, and that I think is what set it apart. And what I was going to say is set it apart not only from a lot of most half-hour shows at the time, but to me, tonally, it just felt different from anything playing in a movie theater at that moment. So I just thought, oh, okay, this is a whole, these, these two guys who wrote this script, you know, Dennis Klein and Gary Shandling, are like clearly trying to in, reinvent the game here. So I, I hopped at the chance, met Gary, and, 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 and I have to say it's, it's really um, great to, you know, kind of hear people talk about the show now as a real harbinger yeah. of the, you know, of the kind of tonally complicated half-hour shows that we now see regularly on, on cable and streaming. And, and well, we, see, we see what's happening behind the scenes and then portions oh, yeah. of the show as, as it's being done before a live audience. And, and even the look of the two are different. Uh, one right. is well, the, the, the behind-the-scenes yeah, kind of grainy and, and the, t- the TV show is all bright. The, the TV show was shot exact or taped, I should say, was taped I, in the exact same way any episode of The Tonight Show was taped at that time on, on I think it was one-inch tape, maybe it was two-inch, I can't remember. But uh, the, the backstage story was shot on 16 millimeters, so there was actually even more contrast than there might have been had we shot on 35. So there was a particularly, that was, that was a real great hallmark of the show, the energy that we got by intercutting between glossy, the glossy tape look, and the grainy 16 millimeter was really wonderful. Yeah, you had a great cast, but in real life, how much does the director get involved in keeping this wide range of personality types and egos working together? In real life, well, you mean on the set? Well, I mean, it's it's one of your chief jobs is to to figure out how to get a lot of sometimes very unruly people on the same page. It's you not mentioned only Rip Torn. Well, Rip, yeah, and Rip Torn. Um, look at I, I write a lot about Rip Torn. He was he was uh, he was a handful. Mm. And but I but I to be honest with you, I felt like we actually established a very wonderful working relationship. Although my hair sort of went gray over the course of my time at the Larry Sanders show. But I would say that, you know, Rip, Rip just sometimes was not able to communicate what was on his mind very well, and he would let it sort of simmer and finally sort of uh, erupt uh, in, in, in unexpected ways. They, they soon became, I, I, it was very expected for me. I just expected once a day that I would have to <laughs> wrangle Rip a little bit. But the truth is it extends to a, not just the one actor and not just the ensemble, but you know, part of the job is trying to get a lot of people, cast and crew and producers and even like you know executives if, if they show up, uh, all of whom, many of whom may have different agendas, like all on the same page. That's and you job. say you have to learn to lead and at the same time make people feel heard. Well, this is a huge thing, and this is my personal philosophy. And by the way, this goes back to your first question about what don't you learn in film school. I think if you're a film fan or if you're in a film student, I mean, I, you learn, you hear lots of legendary stories about directors who are just first-class jerks who, you know, who work a crew to death to get some complicated shot. You hear, you know, the enshrined 
in film lore are many tales of you know angry eruptions on the set, et cetera. Well, I, I think it's a I think it's kind of like nonsense. I don't think that's a good leadership style at all. And so part of my um, part of what I write about and part of what I do is I'm not even I'm not built that way anyway. So I couldn't do it if I wanted to. But my goal is to kind of create an atmosphere where where people feel well acknowledged. So what does that mean? I mean, here's a simple thing, but you know, like how hard is it to actually learn the names of the people you work with? <laughs> Well, you'd be surprised how many directors kind of treat their crews as if they're invisible. And, and hey, when it comes to the and you actors, had so many people that you had to deal with, not just the crew, but uh, these huge casts. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, lo- I mean, a lot of people. And, and for me, I mean, sort of one of the things I try to do from project to project is just get, kind of get a little deeper into that crew list and, and kind of learn the names of people who are on what, you know, who's, who are not right at camera, but people who are... Mm-hmm doing great support work, but sort of on the sidelines. Do you um, think a career spent from behind the camera changes how you see the world? Wow, that's a gigantic question. Well, I mean, I guess what I will say is, um, I, I again, I'm going to go back a little bit to Big Bird and my the, the big mm-hmm. lesson that, you know, for me, the key to being a good director and, and is, is being able to com- connect to something on a human level. So I feel like Directing has enabled me to be a better observer of human behavior. I make, I make no great claims. There are so many great writers whose who's, uh, just ability to kind of analyze human behavior and understand it is far beyond mine. But I do feel like directing has, uh, again, sharpened my uh, you know, ability to sort of just understand how people, why people do what they do, how they tick. Were you able to apply the things you'd learned while working on the Larry Sanders show with with that huge cast when you were hired to direct an even larger cast on the American version of, of the British situation comedy, The Office? Well, there's obviously a, a very direct link between my work on Larry Sanders and my work on The Office. Now, The Office is, uh, you know, it, it, it is a mock documentary. It is a fake documentary. So, um I mean, there is a difference in terms of the shooting style. I mean, every shot choice, at least, um, I don't want to talk about the other directors, all of whom are wonderful, but when I was directing the show, I, I tried to bear in mind that every shot choice should reinforce the illusion that there's this documentary team catching by chance mm-hmm. you know, the day-to-day workings of this paper company. But the key, is, as you, in terms of like working with the ensemble, yes, it's a bigger group. There's the Dunder Mifflin you know, employee roster was bigger than the Larry Sanders show uh, ensemble. And the big challenge for me, and I'm really proud of this, uh, is was you know, trying to keep everyone in a documentary frame of mind. Let me, let me explain that. Uh, when we shot the pilot of The Office, every morning before we would do a scene, I, all, the, all the actors reported to work at like 7 a.m., and they all took their desks in the Dunder Mifflin bullpen, even if they didn't, even if they weren't even in a scene that day, everybody was required to show up as if they were employees at a paper company. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of each day, I would roam the bullpen with the camera operator, and we would simply do uh, what I'll call general views of people at work. So that couldn't be more boring. Shots of, say, Rain Wilson, who plays Dwight Schrute, like sharpening pencils, or, you know, somebody at the water cooler, or 
Angela Kinsey, who plays the accountant, Angela, like doodling a drawing of her cat. None of it had anything to do with the day's work, but what it did is it got the cast in that mode of feeling that they were under observation. That was the key thing. The cast, I wanted the actors to feel like they weren't putting on a show, they weren't putting on something for me, that they were under observation, so that when we finally segued into an actual scripted scene, they maintained that sense of being under observation as they but played the scene. The, the British show with Ricky Gervais was already a hit. Didn't uh, one of your friends tell you, they're going to kill you, the critics are going to kill you? I, <laughs> there, was, there was more than one. There were many naysayers at the outset. And the truth is, I, uh, I was a little daunted because the show uh, was so critically acclaimed, the British show. But most important, it was astonishing. I mean, it really was just on so many levels, such a, such a uh, bold uh, bit of storytelling. So, I, you know, it, it was how to and how, how are we going to replicate this for, on NBC, of all things, a broadcast network? And so, I, again, all, all uh, you know, my, my hat goes off to Greg Daniels, who somehow convinced NBC that it would only work if it maintained some of those unorthodox values that the British show had. Although and, you didn't want to just do a duplication of the British show. No, not at all. And I think there are, there are significant differences. And, and the other thing about the British show, of course, it was, it's only like 13, I think 13 episodes, including a, like a kind of feature-length finale. So, you know, in the, in the world of broadcast television, they, you know, the, the broadcast networks don't want to hear about 13 episodes of series. They want to hear about, you know, they want to they fantasize about a 100-episode series. And so part of, you know, again, part of the challenge was to kind of keep uh, that story going, to keep this premise going for 200-plus episodes that a documentary yeah. team is filming day-to-day -day life at this paper company for 200-plus episodes. Although so you again, have no guarantee when it starts whether a film, whether a show is going to be a hit or not. Well, not only that, we had no idea whether they'd even order the show. I mean, when you shoot a pilot uh, for a broadcast network, by and large, it's an audition piece. You're auditioning your show, and they will test it and debate it and, and finally decide whether to order you know, often only a, a handful of episodes because they're, you know, their network's you know, rightfully, or risk-averse, and, and this was a particularly risky show because it was, again, a very unorthodox uh, comedy. You're listening to London Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Okay, well, before we get back to my conversation with Ken Krapis, uh, I'd like to take a moment to ask you to step up and show your support for this show and this station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And the way to do that is to call right now at 516-620-3602 
or to go online to give to WBAI.org. Becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, is a particularly great way to support the station without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time. And we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show. If you call 516-620-3602 or go to give to WBAI.org, Today, to sign up to become a sustaining member, we'd be happy to send you a copy of the book we've been discussing. But what I really want to do is direct Lessons from a Life Behind the Camera by my guest, Ken Krapis. Uh, all you need to do is call right now, 516-620-3602, or go to your computer or your smartphone and visit give2wbai.org and sign up at the monthly amount of $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable to have taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or whatever accounts easiest for you. Uh, that's, and that's it, pretty much. We will take care of the rest. Becoming a BAI buddy is a great way to support the show and give the station a steady source of support. But however you contribute, the important thing is that you play your part in supporting this show and this legendary radio station, the only station on the New York City FM dial that is completely listener-sponsored. We take no corporate underwriting or, or funding grants of any kind. One last time, the number to call, 516-620-3602, or go to give to WBAI.org online. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large and from all of us at this show and the station. Thank you very much. And i um, very pleased to return to my guest, uh, Ken Kwepis, uh his uh, book, But What I Really Want to Do is Direct, Lessons from a Life Behind the Camera. But you did more than direct. You, you wound up uh, writing. You wound up... Uh, Producing, you get a product, producer credit on, on The Office, and I imagine a few other things. Um, so you've done a little bit of everything. Um, have you acted? Have you, did you, uh, oh, do you, have you ever oh, tried no. acting? No, that would be a mistake. I do not belong in front of the camera at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, also, I, again, I'm going to go back to your very first question. What, what didn't I learn in film school? And one of the things I, I didn't learn was how to, how to talk to actors. Mm. Something I, 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 I don't know what film school is like these days, and I'm sure it's different, but when I was a film student, you weren't required to take an acting class. And when I got out of school and was fortunate enough to land a directing job, I realized I had this shuddering realization that this gigantic you know, aspect of the process, talking to actors, eliciting good performances, was I was it was a new to me. I didn't know what the how, you know. My idea of directing actors was you know if you stand on this spot, it'll make for a cool looking shot. <laughs> so that's and and so I I began a you know a long effort to sort of uh, make myself uh, an actor's director. And you tell any number of stories in the book about how different actors approach what they do differently, and you have to deal with it. Sometimes they do things that surprise you. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, so, I mean, I think the trickiest thing is that sometimes you're, you have a lot of actors who have very different, equally valid, but very different approaches to things. Uh, I, here's something I don't write about, but I've talked to a lot of directors about this, where you have, a, say, two actors, one of whom really, you know, comes right out of the gate and take one or take two, they've sort of given you like a really mm. strong performance. Meanwhile, their scene partner is, just to put it, you know, kind of bluntly, is still waking up. 
and maybe around take seven, that actor will sort of like hit their stride. But meanwhile, <laughs> their partner, who came you know racing out of the gate, is now sort of trying to maintain their energy. So trying to figure out how to uh, again sort of catch each person's you know kind of efforts at their at at the peak moment is really tricky. Um, I've also had the experience of working with actors who uh, are really good at improv uh, and and almost prefer to you know improvise their words, uh, but sometimes it plays havoc when they're playing yeah. with an actor who is more classically trained. I'll just mention a, a brief a brief pair of wonderful actors. I worked with Justin Long and Jennifer Goodwin on the film. He's just not that into you. And Justin is like this wonderful uh, improviser and kind of comes up with wonderful stuff off the cuff. Uh, Ginny is not, you know, she may be a good improviser, but but mainly she's a very classically trained uh, actor who really, like, studies the text and really finds a lot of meaning in the text. So when these two had, I mean, these two were sort of the key, they, they played the key characters in this ensemble piece. And at, at first when we were doing our scenes, it was kind of a little crazy because she would deliver her scripted line and he'd just improvise something that was completely not, not, on, not from the script. Then she would respond with her next scripted line and then he would improvise again. So like pretty quickly, the scene made absolutely no sense. <laughs> part, of my, part of my job was to sort of figure out how to, again, get their equally good, you know, uh, approaches to work together, to mesh together. You offer a code of etiquette on feedback, and uh, you, the, some of the things you have to okay. deal with is uh, handling uh, an actor saying, this dialogue doesn't work for me, or this line isn't funny. Well, that, well, about feedback, that's a slightly different thing than working with the actors themselves, but I do feel like, I, I feel like this is just my own personal philosophy about feedback. For instance, if you gave, if you wrote a script or if you made a film and, and you have a rough cut and you want to invite me into the cutting room to give you some constructive feedback, then it's time for me to roll up my sleeves and not be afraid to tell you, you know, what I feel about certain things. But my code is that once the film is done, once you've locked it and once it's, you know, on a screen, there's no, my feedback is not important. All that's important is celebrating the fact that you got it done. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've been like literally at the premiere of one of my films when a well-meaning you know, acquaintance or colleague will come up and say, congratulations, you know, that second act still kind of sags a little bit, but you know, good work. So it's like, really, what, <laughs> why, what's the point that your two cents are not meaningful right now? <laughs> and you say uh, in telling that story, they're probably not really your friend. No, I, I would say if they, yes, if they, if they think you're your friend, maybe they're not. And, and, but I do, but I do feel like that is a, that is something um, that not a lot of people abide by. I think that, you know, for whatever reason, people love to cling to their opinions of your work, even if it's, even when it's finished, their feedback—they're—they're—they're they're, they're so clinging to their, you know, precious ideas about what you should do with your piece. But once it's done, put that aside. So, as we pointed out, you've directed a number of uh, feature films. Did you bring what you learned from working in television into directing the feature films? Yeah, and vice versa. I mean, I think that the—the, the, I mean, I would say that you know there are a lot of obvious differences between directing a feature story 
and an episodic story. Here's just a couple of them. I mean, I, I would say that for me, you know, one of the one of the pleasures of directing a feature film is that you sort of get to trace the you know kind of emotional arc of a character over the course of like you know 120 minutes as opposed to trying to figure out how to keep that arc going mm -hmm. you know in, in some serialized form or you know over the course of a longer period of time so i feel like the the experience of both directing and and watching it is so different but at the same time you know the, the on the flip side if you're doing an episodic story you have a, you know you have more room to explore lots of different sort of avenues into that character lots of different you know, aspects of their backstory. Again, this is, you know, I'm not a writer, but it, it, you know, one of the great things about a, a wonderful serialized narrative is just you have more real estate to explore. Um, I would say the other thing that's important for me is, like, if you're doing a, a, a if you're directing a, a network comedy, let's say, and, and you know, I, the great... Malcolm in the Middle, let's say, or the Bernie Malcolm, Mac Malcolm in the Middle is a good example. And, and I directed 19 episodes of Malcolm, the most episodes of any show I've directed. What I love about that show, a very ambitious show, by the way, but one of the great things I, about you know, doing that kind of a show where there's maybe 25, 26 episodes a year is that if something goes wrong... If there, or, or if something you know, if something goes wrong in any given episode, there's, things are not so precious. You you can fix it the next time you go, in the next episode. So for and, and I just find that sometimes it, one of the you know, in in episodic television directing, it, things are not precious in a, in a really wonderful way. There won't be like a, a ninety you know a half hour conversation about what you know color a coffee mug should be you know in, in the set. Whereas there might be that kind of conversation on a feature film set, so I, again, I, I feel that there's no time. You have. But to I'd imagine there's also a big difference when you, uh, whether you, you you're doing a feature film or you're doing the pilot and and the following shows of of a TV series, as opposed to coming in to a TV series in the middle after other people have already directed and the show has already established its characters. Right. Well, I mean, I, I again, I, I feel. I've been fortunate to have been you know, at, you know, present at the creation of a lot of shows, so I've helped set the style for many shows, but I've also you know, come in as, as kind of a hired gun. Uh, sometimes late in the run of a show, I worked on a couple episodes of the medical drama ER, and I, I can't remember what season those two episodes were in, but it was well, well down the road. It, it, and, and of course it was like the, such a popular show and clearly the cast and the crew of the show were doing something right. So you come on the set is like, who am I to tell these people what to do? They clearly know what they're doing. And yet I promise you that, you know, they want fresh ideas. They're yearning for fresh ideas. And so part of your job uh, coming into a show late in its run or well into its run is being able to somehow uh, earn sort of sort of make sure everyone knows that you respect what they've accomplished, but at the same time, not be afraid to to, to you know enhance what they've done with new ideas. I often use the analogy of of going to a dance. Like if you 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 pick a dance partner and you go out onto the dance floor, the first thing to do is to do the steps that they already know before you show them a few new steps. Now, in, in the some of the feature films that you did, like The Sisterhood of, of the Traveling Pants, where he's just not that into you, or A Walk in the Woods, mm -hmm. were they things that you were in on uh, from conception, or did somebody say to you, hey, I got this 
movie project, and uh, I think you'd be the perfect director for it. No, those three films, I was hired long after the projects had been in development. And um, I, now that's not to say that once I came aboard, I, you know, I I'd had nothing to do with further development. In fact, in all three cases, I worked with the writers to, you know, to fine tune and shape the piece. Each of those three films before we started shooting, but I was not present at the inception of those projects. You have also written, so does that get complicated at times? Not really. I, I mean, I love to write. Uh, I don't consider myself a screenwriter first. Obviously, I, I love. I, I but I feel like part of Part of what I do feel good about is I feel like I can work with writers. So I mean, I feel like there's there's one of the one of the one of the trickiest things, you know, especially if you're if you're a kind of a hired gun, is being able to you know get a writer to warm up to you and be open to your ideas. So I so I, again for me it, it, it's uh, I love the idea of it, just having established great relationships with writers. My guest is Ken Quapis. His book, What I Really Want to Do is Direct Lessons from a Life Behind the Camera, uh, and it is published by um, by St. Martin's. Uh, now, and this is WBAI New York, I'm supposed to say that, uh, WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. How do directors view reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and, and the various social media driven review sites? I can only speak for one director, that would be myself. I, I, I've stopped reading reviews of my own work. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I will tell you, in the late 1980s I directed a film that was uh, really, really received some terrible reviews and, and frankly I took it so personally. I, I just, mm. I, 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 it was very hurtful to me and it was unexpected. And, I, and, you, and, and you write, I'm quoting, I wish someone had given me tools to survive the toxic, toxic ethos of the business. Uh, the moment okay. I got a toehold in this business, I observed that everyone conspires to make you feel inadequate. <laughs> well, that is true. And certainly at times, that's what reviewers do. But what happened in the late 80s is I, I embarked upon a sort of informal research project. I started asking all of the creative people I, I, I knew at that time how they dealt with reviews. And I got a, you know, a very wide variety of uh, answers, including, you know, there's people who said, you know, if you, if you believe the good ones, then you, by definition, have to believe the bad ones, too. Hmm. There were people who said, you know, it, it, whatever, you know, doesn't kill me makes me stronger, so I read them. So, but, but here's the thing that I really came away with, and that is that uh, for creative people, uh, they may get 99 good reviews, but they will commit to memory that one bad review. And I talked I talk to, talk to people uh, whose work I really revere, and I said, oh, I love that one film of yours. And, and in one case, a, a, a director, she, she proceeded to quote back word for word this, like, merciless pan she received. So I, it was, I had this, like, you know, kind of light bulb moment, this real epiphany that, you know, this stuff kind of, these negative reviews, they, they're stuck on your hard drive. They don't go away. And, and at that point, I decided to embark upon a review-free diet. For, and, and, and like many you know, self-imposed health regimes, I fell off now and then. But by and large, I've maintained it to this day. And you say it's important to measure success on your own terms. 
What are that your is, own terms? That's actually the grand theme of the whole book. I mean, and, and I, I suppose if I could meet my 20-something self right now, the, you know, the advice, or if I could talk, you know, I say this to many up-and-coming filmmakers, that, you know, the key is really to figure out a, a way to measure success on your own terms as opposed to letting the business define you. Because, you know, the business will define you. And, and the last thing you want to feel is, you know, that you're some kind of commodity with a market value that fluctuates from project to project. And so, this again, this is just my personal philosophy, and many people deal with it differently. But, I mean, for me, I first thing first is you figure out what you cannot control in, in this career. You cannot control the efforts or the outcome of the efforts that you make. You can't control how many people are going to buy a ticket to your movie. You can't control how many people are going to tune in to your show. As you can't control what the critics are going to say. Uh, the only thing you can control is the process of making the thing itself. So what I've tried to do over the years is you know, just keep focused on process and from job to job, from film to film or series to series. Just you know, I have just sort of a list of different things. Seven ways. Oriented things. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and, and it's like, can I improve the process uh, from job to job. For instance, we talked a little bit about creating an atmosphere on the set where people feel acknowledged, um, safe, free to play, et cetera. Can I, you know, from, from project to project, can I improve that process? Can I, and, and so there's just a number of ways that I try and, um, you know, I, 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 a number of things I try to do to, and, and again, the out, for me, the, the result is, is that if I keep focused on process, it's a lot easier to weather like the innumerable setbacks, you know, and ups and downs of the business, uh, you know, including like, you know, meetings that don't go well or projects that go off the rails at the last moment. So that would be that that would be the again, the big the big theme of the book. And, the and you say in trusting the process, don't react but by tightening the reins when things go bad in the set, digging in your heels about a particular point, or locking into an approach that's not productive, better to loosen your grip and let the elements fall in place, and they will. That I, I like. I'm quoting you, so I'm sure you agree with <laughs> no, that. <laughs> no, I, I, a lot of what I, I write about in the book is being prepared, and then also being prepared to throw away your preparation. Uh huh. And, and so, you know, that, that's a key part of the book. So what do you think about the current situation? Obviously, the pandemic has affected the film industry. Um, is it going to shape the content that will emerge from this time period? Well, again, there's, you know, I haven't been directing since the pandemic started, so I can't speak uh, from experience about what it's like to be out But you have friends in the business, and I'm oh, sure I you talk do. about this. I definitely do. I mean, I would say my, my observation is that it has inspired a lot of creative people to really step up and come up with some really interesting and innovative uh, ways to, uh, you know, kind of deal with the pandemic. But also a lot of creative people are coming up with stories that don't require big casts. I mean, I've been on many you know, Zoom calls with producers and executives where the, the question on the table is, can you come up with a great story that only involves two people? And, you know, happily, there are some great, you know, films that we can point to that only have a couple of characters. I'm, I'm thinking right now of the wonderful film, Rob Reiner's film, Misery, with James Caan and Kathy Bates. That's it, two people. And, and so, I mean, there's a lot of sort of, uh, 
you know, kind of a lot of people have devoted the energy to c- coming up with pandemic-friendly stories. Uh, but I, I have, a, you know, I think the protocols are starting to starting to work. So hopefully by this time, hopefully by the spring, you know, we'll be kind of back to, back to normal. My biggest concern, frankly, is uh, you know even before the pandemic, I feel like audiences were more and more inclined to you know curl up with their laptop and, and binge watch a series than to than to go out and to a movie theater and i I'm, I am concerned that, uh, my hope is that people will kind of you know be re you know kind of get excited about going back to the theater again to see movies um, and and but boy that that makes me a little nervous well I can imagine a romantic comedy uh, in which the uh, the couple is both has to wear masks all the time. But that, <laughs> uh, thank That's you a good so idea. much. Idea, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for being on our show. It's been a great pleasure talking with you, Ken Krapis, K W A P I S. His book, but what I really want to do is direct lessons from a life behind the camera. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. The book is from Saint Martin's Griffin. Thank you. I'm so happy to be a guest on your show. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison, who prepared today's interview. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast, or you can visit our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. And you can reach me directly at my email address, LeonardLopate at WBAI.org, if you'd like to comment on a show or just to say hello. Before I sign off, I want to take just one last moment to ask you for your support for this station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all the great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep it all going. So please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with if you care about keeping 100% listener-supported community radio alive. Please go online to give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 right now and show your support. And as I mentioned at the half, if you become a BAI buddy during today's show by making a monthly contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, we will be delighted to send you a free copy of the book we've been discussing today. But what I really want to do is direct lessons from a life behind the camera by my guest, Ken Krapis, as our way of saying thanks. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large and do it right away from all of us at the station. Thank you so much. And we hope that you can join us again tomorrow when food experts Marion Nessel and Kerry Truman will return to our show to take your calls about seeing through the hype and eating right. See you then.